Father, we long for the day when you send your Son back to us. And we look forward to that day when we shout your praise with all creation. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And in the meantime, Lord, we we long for you. We need you today. So would you come to us in your spirit and speak to us now, deep in our hearts. Lead us into truth, we pray. As we sang earlier, would you turn our hearts from seeking any lesser glory and teach our hearts with all your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. In the last year, a Harvard University-led study revealed some alarming trends among young people today. Found a, a relatively new phenomenon where younger people, especially those under 25 years old, view their well-being and happiness as worse off than any other age group does. Historically, though, that age group has been the most hopeful in studies like this, the the most optimistic, the the highest life satisfaction. But things are shifting. Now, the younger you are, the unhappier you tend to be. The author of this study speculated about a huge variety of possible causes for this, including job prospects, heavy school debt, and housing costs in a down economy, Low social connectedness, loneliness, social media use, high drug and alcohol use, lower participation in family life and religious communities, political polarization, and then a turbulent global scene with the pandemic and wars and climate change and much more. Whatever the cause is, it seems clear that our trajectory as a society is toward unhappiness. Why is that? Is life really worse now than it was in prior generations? I highly doubt it. In many ways, life is exponentially better now than it has been in the past. And yet people are just as unsatisfied with their well-being as ever, if not more. I want to offer one other possible explanation today for our continued and growing unhappiness. Could it be that this is just the way life is right now? In our time and place in history, in the not yet between mankind's devastating fall and our final redemption, like life is skewed toward unhappiness. There's a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes that I think would suggest just such an answer. We began to study it together last Sunday and we'll continue throughout this fall. But you can turn there with me now to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes is, is one of the most frank, honest, like real books in Scripture. And the deep honesty that it has about life also makes it one of the most timelessly relevant books out there. 
We began to see this last week as, as Solomon, or someone speaking as Solomon, called the preacher, broke the sad news to us that, that life in this fallen world is a vanity, he says. And look at verse 2. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And we're introducing some really key ideas here that by vanity, Solomon is saying life is both fleeting and frustrating. The, the Hebrew word means breath or vapor or smoke. So like the breath you can see on a, in a cold morning or, or smoke from birthday candles. Vanity means it, it comes and goes quickly. It's ungraspable. It's elusive. And under the sun refers to life as we experience it in this physical fallen world. It doesn't include everything in existence. Some things aren't under the sun. It's, it's not how life was meant to be, nor how it will be, but how it really is right now. And I hope that helps us understand what Solomon means by life under the sun being a vanity, or all vanity. This world has fallen, it's broken, which has affected every aspect of our human ex experience. Which, as we saw in verses 4 to 11 last week, makes life unsatisfying, cyclical, wearisome, and forgettable. And so he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the central question. What's the point? What do we really profit in this world? All of which hopefully awakens us to our need for something or someone beyond this world. And for the rest of the book, Solomon's going to try to prove his case beyond a shadow of a doubt. He first does this by going on a quest, a thorough search for something that's not vanity, something lasting, something solid, something substantial, something graspable. And who better to carry out a quest like this than the, the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful guy around? Thus, he reintroduces himself in verse 12, where we start today, with his royal credentials. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, if you know your Bible, Solomon's reign was like the height of decadence and power for the kingdom of Israel. And Solomon himself had been blessed by God with an extraordinary dose of wisdom so he essentially had limitless power, limitless resources to embark upon his quest. Today, he'd be akin to, to someone being the U.S. president and owner of Jeff Bezos' wealth and a renowned author and poet and a holder of multiple PhDs from the best schools around. Like Solomon could do whatever he wanted, whenever and however he wanted. And in verse 13, he describes this project or this quest that he sets out on. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
Now, under heaven being synonymous with under the sun here. But I applied my heart to this. Just, just because God granted Solomon the capacity for really unprecedented wisdom didn't mean that all the knowledge was just instantly uploaded into his brain. No, he still had to apply himself to the pursuit of wisdom, devoting his life to learning. Though, of course, as Solomon, he would have had access to all the best writings of his day, all the the greatest teachers, schools, libraries, the whole gamut of human experiences. He had access, and he had the ability to, to understand all that he was studying and he was learning. He could apply his genius level IQ to all of the above. So here he says he did so diligently, seeking and searching out all that is done under heaven. And he says that he applied his heart, which refers to the center of thinking, feeling, and doing. In other words, this wasn't merely an intellectual exercise. He was all in. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, it's likely that he wasn't talking about divine, godly wisdom here, but more so human wisdom, the very best thinking and understanding of mankind out there, everything that people can figure out about the world under the sun. There's nothing inherently wrong with this kind of wisdom. It's a worthy pursuit. But Solomon's going to figure out that, that human wisdom certainly has its limits. We don't actually know everything. The the smartest minds around don't know it all. Even the internet, the largest repository of human knowledge ever assembled, knows only a sliver of all there is to know. But anyway, Solomon goes, I'm going to start this study project of epic proportions. I'm going to to read, I'm going to listen, I'm going to travel the world, I'm going to observe, I'm going to crack all the books, I'm going to crunch all the numbers, I'm going to become an expert, I'm going to experiment here, try out all kinds of things, test different fields, feel all the feels. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I'm going to figure it out. With my smarts, my resources, I'll make sense of it all. Even though we might not frame it in such grand terms, we're on similar searches every day. Whether we realize it or not, we all long for true wisdom and knowledge. And in our information age, There is an illusion that it's all right there at our fingertips. If only we know where to look. What to ask Google or Alexa or ChatGPT. Why do we spend years of our lives and massive amounts of money going to school? Why get educated? To learn wisdom and knowledge that we feel we need in order to to make a living or have a fulfilling career or to make it in our society. 
The pursuit of, of wisdom and knowledge is often why we read books or blogs or articles. It's why we watch YouTube or documentaries, why we listen to podcasts or so on. It's a, it's a root of why we go on social media even, seeking knowledge about other people. It's even often why some of us go to church or why you're, you'd bother listening to me. We want to know. We want to know more and more. <laughs> Ultimately, wisdom and knowledge, though, are usually a means to an end, not an end in themselves. We want something else that wisdom or knowledge can offer us. We want maybe the sense of control that information gives us or, or the superiority of being smarter than those around us or the security of not being dumb or ignorant, self-protective security, or the peace that comes from understanding things, or the ability to, to make more money or build a comfier life. And notice that Solomon wasn't really searching for wisdom as much as he was using Wisdom to search and find something else here. It says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He was, like I said, he was searching for non-vanity. He was, he was looking for some value, some true gain, seeking satisfaction, self-fulfillment. Ultimately, I believe he was searching for happiness. The quintessential human quest. Whether or not it's the right goal in life, we are all involved in a pursuit of happiness. As David Gibson describes it, just about everything you've done so far today was to make yourself happy. You fed yourself. You stayed in the shower a bit longer because the kids were fighting downstairs. You dressed yourself. If you can, for the rest of the day, you will do what makes you happy. What we long for and live for is happiness on the surface of our lives and at the deepest level of our lives. In all our varied pursuits, earning a living, finding a spouse, raising good children, having fun, keeping fit, we exhibit a common desire to be happy in what we do. We live with a purpose toward a specific end and we have a goal to be happy. Solomon's goal too must have been happiness. And you would think, with such a gifted guy, perhaps the most brilliant and the least limited on earth, that a search like this must have been fruitful. At the least, he wouldn't return empty-handed. As I apply my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. But he soon discovered, continue, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Here's the, the simple big idea. Look closely, and you'll see the unhappiness of our fallen lives. If we look closely, we'll see the inherent unhappiness of our fallen lives on this broken and cursed earth. 
Solomon went looking for happiness, but he found unhappiness. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Other versions call this unhappy business a heavy burden, a sorry task, or a tragic experience. Or existence, sorry. Solomon may even sound bitter here to you. But I think it's more just resignation to life as it is. It's it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. At the worst, this would imply that chaos or chance aren't behind our hardships. God is. But you may hear this and recoil, like, what do you mean that God gives us an unhappy business? God doesn't want us to be happy? Or, so, when I find that life is so hard, God's to blame? Some of you may even think this confirms suspicions you have about God, that he's not really out for our good, but he has it out for us. You all might wonder, if this is true, is God really good after all? If it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. But here's the thing. Yes, God hasn't made things easy on us, but it's not his fault. It's ours. Question. When did God give us an unhappy business to be busy with? When did that happen? When he created us? Well, no. Any work that we were given then would have been a pure joy. He laid a heavy burden on us as humanity as part of the curse after sin. Listen to Genesis 3. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the way, that's not just saying farmers and agricultural workers who were cursed. Everyone, all mankind's work is filled with toilsome labor now, pain even. And God went on, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Does any of that sound very happy to you? No, our unhappy business was given by God. Life's frustrations can be traced back to him. But we can't blame him. He only did what he warned us he would have to do if we ever decided that our ways are better than his ways and rebelled against him. Have you ever wondered, was the curse, when God put a curse on the earth, was it God just punishing us? Dropping the holy hammer? Or was it more a a heartbreaking discipline that God needed to give us. I'm convinced it was the latter, that the curse was meant as a discipline to draw us back to God. 
He drove us out of Eden in order to eventually drive us deeper into his heart, into his love, into his grace, and his mercy. Why do I say this? Well, in Romans 8, it says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there's a happy future in store for us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, or you might as well say vanity there, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now there's God cursing our world. And why did he do this? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So did you see that? God's goal all along for us and for our fallen world was glory and freedom. Even as he subjected our world to the curse, he was planning for redemption. Know what shows up only a few verses after that in Romans 8? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, in context, even includes the curse. Let me put it this way. God gave us an unhappy business in life in order to show us that true happiness cannot be found in this fallen life. It can only be found in him. Besides, if God only meant to punish us without any hope of redemption, he would never have sent Jesus. But even back in Genesis 3, he promised that a deliverer would come one day the seed of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. And Christ did come, trampling over the devil and our sin on the cross before destroying the curse of death in his resurrection. Oh, we still return to dust, but now we also return to glory beyond belief. (laughs) And so... If you're here, you want to be freed from the power and penalty of sin in this life. You need Jesus. There is no hope for any real rescue from the unhappiness of the curse, the evil that's resident in our own hearts, or the certainty of death outside of him. You need Jesus. So I hope that you'd stake it all on him today. And we'd love to help you do this if you want to. Solomon didn't know everything. He didn't know what was coming. I think he would have been amazed by the wisdom in God's plan to save fallen people like you and me. Meanwhile, we all still need to be realistic about life on earth because there's still much unhappiness in it. Like he says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with and go, What a disappointment. But such is life. And that's the point. Kids, I'm sorry to say that this life will not be all ice cream cones and heart stickers for you. So you know 
Your parents tend to get worried about the world that they brought you into and that you're growing up in. Worried about what it might do to you. And not just because they're old-fashioned, stuck in some past era, but because they love you and this world really is an increasingly bleak place. As one of the children of men, you've joined the family business of the human race. (laughs) And it's an unhappy business. So prepare yourselves. And don't don't assume that that nothing good will ever happen to you. That's not true. There will be plenty of joys in life. But don't be surprised when plenty of bad happens as well. And don't blame God for it. Verse 14, Solomon goes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. It's all vanity. It's all frustrating. It's going to be fleeting. Now, that verse might as well be Solomon's summary statement of the next several passages, next few weeks. It's his precis or thesis statement at the top of his research paper. Before he presents his findings. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after when I've seen it all, and it's all disappointing. Behold, or, or look with me, look closely. And with that, he invites us to join him on his quest. He uses another metaphor here, though, of of striving after wind or or chasing after the wind, which is a a picture of trying to to beat the wind in a foot race or trying to catch the wind like a hunter catches prey. The term literally means to shepherd the wind, guiding it where you want it to go. There are ways you might say we can catch wind today with kites or sails or hang gliders. None of those actually catch the wind, though, do they? They use the wind. If we actually caught the wind, it would cease to be wind. Just be air. Can't do it. So Solomon says to to look around life with him. Look Look at business, academics, politics, hobbies, entertainment, fitness, healthcare, social work, sports, what have you. All the toil that we pour into things like these are, is trying to, to strive after wind. Just another way to say it's, it's vanity. So futile and frustrating. And in verse 15, he makes the same point with this poetic proverb. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, Solomon doesn't mean this as an absolute fatalistic fact of life. He's more just observing how powerless he is to change how things are in the world. Because of the curse, there's a, there's a fracture in the structure of the universe. Things are now crooked and, and bent out of shape. And things are lacking. Life fails to add up. And not even Solomon could fix this with all his genius, all his resources. As Philip Reichen comments, 
There are many things in life that we wish we could straighten out but cannot, any more than we can mend a crumpled fender. We suffer arguments at home, conflicts in the church, wrongs done in the workplace, mistakes made by the government, our own moral failings, financial troubles, physical disabilities, the list goes on and on. Some of our circumstances cannot be corrected. There are so many things that we are powerless to change, people we cannot manage, problems we cannot solve, longings we cannot satisfy. We certainly cannot bend life to our own will simply by the exercise of human wisdom. Now that doesn't all mean that we should just give up on trying to make any difference. It means we should stop pinning all our hopes and dreams on our own feeble and futile efforts. And in case we misunderstand, Solomon never says here that pursuing wisdom or knowledge is a bad thing. Just that it's a vain thing. It's not nearly as valuable as we may make it. So, we shouldn't be anti-intellectual or try to stay uneducated or uninformed. Remember, Jesus said to love the Lord our God with all our minds. We should exercise our minds. However, we can also put way too much stock in our education or our expertise at times. Treating it like a, an ultimate goal in life, to get a prestigious education, or to be admired for how knowledgeable or skilled we are, or prioritizing it over our, the health of our souls, or our children's souls, pushing them to succeed academically at all costs, or maybe looking down on those who are not as well-learned or knowledgeable as we are. And therefore... Solomon wants to disillusion us with human wisdom. Wisdom first showed him how, or he showed him the unhappy vanity of life in this fallen world. And then wisdom showed him the vanity of wisdom in this fallen world. Look how he continues in verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You get what he's saying? Human wisdom is vanity. It's frustrating and it lets us down. And why? Because it can actually get us down. Knowledge can increase sorrow. So, look closely and you'll see the unhappiness of our fallen lives and learn more, and the unhappiness of life may only get worse. Learn more, and you can feel the experience of unhappiness even more so. The fact is, 
Gaining wisdom and knowledge can't solve our human lack of happiness. It can't. And many times, it can make our unhappiness only worse. Don't take it from me. Take it from Solomon, who knew more than anyone. I've said in my heart, I acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that may or may not have been prideful for Solomon. Regardless, it was true. Like God himself told Solomon, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. This was the man who gave us such incredible proverbs, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, or, or trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, and keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Here in Ecclesiastes, he says he essentially even got a degree in wisdom's opposite, in folly or madness. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. And that knowledge even came through in his Proverbs. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, if you know Solomon's story, you'll likely suspect he got to know folly a little too well firsthand. But his point here is that apparently the more he knew about everything, wisdom and folly, the more depressed he got. Why would that be? Because learning can expose us to the many complexities of this life, enigmas, And because the more we learn, the more we can see how broken and dark the world really is. Ignorance is bliss, we say. Because sometimes knowledge can be really hard to know. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. See, The vanity of life isn't only trivial stuff. It can be heart-wrenching stuff. For example, get to know the, the disturbing details of abuse or immorality, murder, or war, and see how much happiness that brings you. How much peace of mind it gives you? Or, how much better is the world when we hear today's constant streams of bad news? I'm convinced that our minds aren't built to handle the glut of bad news that we consume today. In older times, Yes, there were plenty of tragedies still, suffering, heartache, but it was more localized. You saw a limited amount in your own community. People just weren't aware of all the atrocities and sorrow worldwide. Now we are. Like We can hear of 
gun violence or racial unrest or war crimes or natural disasters or abuse allegations within minutes of them actually happening from anywhere in the world. We can't handle that much sadness. We're not built for it. But the more you know, not only do you realize how much you don't know, as the saying goes, the more you know, the more you hurt. The more you see the vanity of our fallen world, the more we recognize the, how the foolishness and sin all around us, and that can wreck us. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Thus, instead of making us happier, all our knowledge gives is vexation or sorrow. It, it vexes us. Upsets us, it, it grieves us, it angers us, and often righteously so. Something's wrong, and we, we know it's wrong. This is not how things should be. People shouldn't be so foolish, or so frail, or so wicked, or so mistreated. You know what? That can be 100% true because we live in a fallen world. We live under the sun. Of course, with our obsessive or even idolatrous striving after education or knowledge, we're acting like wisdom can save us from this. As Gibson observes, we are sure education can save us from all our ills and place us on the road to happiness. The preacher shows us that this particular pursuit is as old as the hills. Get into the best schools, study hard, achieve the best results, learn and learn and learn, get up the ladder and you'll go far. Aim at the top and the sun will shine. Join the academic professionals and you will surely soar on the new heights of your knowledge. It's not so, says the preacher. The more I knew, the sadder I became. Students, especially university students, I think you need to hear this today. Don't go dropping out of school. Parents are going to hate me. <laughs> but put school in its, its rightful and proper place in life. Like realize the limitations of what your education can do. Recognize your own limits, too. And don't bank everything on what you learn. Study hard. But think through why you're doing what you're doing. Make sure you're not just doing it so you can gain more vain things in this life. And don't study so hard to the exclusion of all other good pursuits in your life, like your friends, your family, and especially your faith. Or you may end up like Solomon, looking back, muttering, vanity. What was the point? But what is the point anyway? If applying ourselves to know things is just striving after a win, then, then why bother with wisdom and knowledge at all? Like, maybe you think, I, if, if I don't need to learn, 
that I could just get busy with mindless hard work. Or I can spend my life vegging out to mindless entertainment like Disney Plus or Minecraft. Not so fast. If you think this way at all, I encourage you to come out the next two weeks. Solomon's going to dive into this. For today, we need to see that there is still value in developing our minds. Remember, vanity doesn't mean meaningless. It means frustrating and fleeting. So, our learning will not accomplish all we may think it can in our short lives, and we must keep it in the proper perspective as a servant, not a savior. Author Andy Wilson put it this way, Solomon, the richest, wisest, most, most thoroughly married man in history, said that our lives are but vapor, that our days are full of sorrow, and that while greater knowledge is a greater burden, we should still get wisdom. We should grow, knowing that our burden will grow with us. Hear Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So in other words, there is a kind of understanding and knowledge that delights the Lord. Knowing him. Apply your heart to pursue that with all your mind. Or what about Romans 12 too? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here it says we're to use our minds to resist being conformed to the world, to seek spiritual transformation, and to learn what God desires from us. There's still value in our minds. But anyway, if here in Ecclesiastes, if things sound hopeless again at the end, then Solomon has achieved his goal. Remember, he aims to depress us into dependence. Because we search for happiness in all kinds of life's pursuits, including wisdom. But life cannot be truly happy without the creator and giver of joy and happiness. Oh, sure, talk to anyone, and people often think they're happy in this life. With their jobs and positions and families and friends and money. But they don't see the vanity. Or they don't want to see the vanity. And so we all stick our heads in the sand and pretend, it's all good, man. It's delusional. And so we need to let Ecclesiastes disillusion us. And when we despair, then, over the, the limits of our human wisdom and knowledge, we need to see the one greater than Solomon has come. One with wisdom, more wisdom than Solomon. Christ was called the very wisdom of God. 
And when he entered our fallen world, he showed us the wisest way to live in it. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But think about it. This wisest man of all, Christ, was also known for being a man of what? A man of sorrows. He was acquainted with a grief greater than any of us could handle. The more he knew, the more that knowledge pained him and eventually cost him as he carried out God's plan and carried our sorrows, sins, and foolish vanity to the cross. He literally knew it all. And he knew great sorrow. Therefore, don't expect total happiness in this world as you follow the man of sorrows. Don't try to just bend everything crooked back to your own desires. And and don't expect everything to add up or make sense right here and right now. Be content to to humbly submit to God's will for your life because he knows better. But also, in the meantime, don't hesitate to bring your sorrows to the Lord because he knows how frustrating our lives can be. He lived it, and he cares about us. Torn and ruined by the fall, Let's bring our desperation to him. After all, he entered our vexation and sorrow so that ultimately we could know his joy. Yes, even after all we read today, I firmly believe that God does want us to be happy. Romans 15, 13 prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Like He wants us filled with all joy and peace, abounding in hope. Like That's happiness. However, God can't just give us all we want on our terms because that would destroy us. So he gave us an unhappy business in life to steer us away from our own ways and back toward his. God also can't let us find true happiness in things that will ultimately not satisfy us. He wants us to find our happiness in him because he's the only thing or being that will never let us down. So when we possess sorrow and grief in this life, May God be our treasure. Even in the midst of our fallen world, the more you know him, the greater your joy will be. Father, please, in our sorrows, in our brokenness, give us your joy. Give us your peace and give us your hope. Fill us, God, we pray with this. 
Help us keep our eyes on you through it all. We bring all of our hopes, all of our sadness, all ourselves to you right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.